You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Spinal cord injuries produce devastating and lifelong disabilities. What therapies are available to us to help our patients who have these unfortunate injuries? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Naomi Kleitman, Program Director with the Spinal Cord Injury Portfolio at the National Institute for Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Kleitman. Thank you. When we have a spinal cord injured patient, we want to rehabilitate. Tell us some of the the things that we can offer our chronically injured patients. Well, anyone with a spinal cord injury doesn't need me to tell them just how, how many of their body systems are affected. And probably your clinical friends don't either, but I'll take a I'll take a stab at it. At the level of early hospitalization, the patients have to learn a lot about taking care of their bodies and about the bowel and bladder care, um, any pain that that they have due to the injuries, pain that might develop during the the, the first months after injury, um, how to get around in the wheelchair, a lot of occupational physical therapy, um, range of motion kinds of things. But there's a lot of things on the horizon as well in terms of training either to, to be used in combination with experimental therapies or potentially as experimental therapies themselves for restoring walking after injury that have been tested recently and even electrical devices, um, bioengineered devices that may help restore some functions by actually circumventing the nervous system and replacing it with electric signals. And in terms of repairing the nervous system, then these therapies actually do cause some regeneration and renewal of lost neurologic function? Despite the fact that the injuries themselves, in terms of tissue injuries, expand even beyond the, the, the initial injury during the first weeks and maybe months after injury, the, the common finding is that they'll almost always, unless a patient is completely complete, all the messages have been severed, there's very often recovery of some function soon after the injury in many, many patients. In the case of incomplete injuries where a person hasn't lost all the connections, there can be very substantial recovery over time during the first year or even couple of years after injury. The point of a lot of rehabilitation is just to utilize all the function that is left and make sure the patients know how to do it safely, but some is actually aimed at restoring function beyond that. I'm certainly familiar in, in stroke patients who present with an initial deficit that over often the first 48 hours or so they'll have a dramatic recovery of nerve function, but with spinal cord injury, this can extend, as you were saying, for up to a couple of years. In some spinal cord patients, it, it, generally what happens is if a person shows recovery, it'll begin reasonably early. It's very unusual to have a person. There were obviously reports of this in Christopher Reeve's case where he he had shown no function for many years after his injury and then undergoing a very intensive rehab program seemed to show some movements in his legs after that. But that's actually quite uncommon. But if a person is undergoing recovery during the, the early stages of their injury, there have been documented cases of that recovery continuing slowly over time, um, as I said, for several years. And is this a regeneration of synapses, or do we understand how the mechanism of this? Well, we don't know a lot about the mechanisms of how that actually happens in people. There are studies going on now looking using, for instance, functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, to look at what changes in the brain might be going on. Your, your allusion to um, stroke injury is actually very, very important. The idea is is the brain may actually be accommodating to some of the lost pathways 
and finding an alternative way to get the same function done, um, which which may be part of what's going on in terms of stroke. The other allusion to stroke is your listeners may have heard about constrained therapy and stroke, which is to just do the same thing over and over again with the injured arm by constraining. If a person, for instance, has lost function in one arm, you constrain the good arm and make them work the weak arm to make the weak arm stronger in terms of the brain connections that control it. That's the the, the analogy to that in spinal cord is actually something uh, that's being looked at in many places in terms of uh, locomotor training, which is su- literally suspending somebody over a treadmill if they can't carry their own weight and then uh, walking their legs on the treadmill with whatever voluntary function they have. That both serves to strengthen the muscles that are remain you know remain under control, but actually we think to train the spinal cord to walk better, just like with the stroke. There are nerve fibers in the spinal cord that control walking. And we, we, I always like to joke, the reason I can walk and chew gum at the same time is because my spinal cord is walking. Mm-hmm. It's my mouth that's chewing gum. So there's a lot of connections in the cord that mediate walking. And the idea is actually to strengthen those connections and improve the person's ability to balance if, if they have a fair amount of walking. And that's what a lot of the treadmill training um, bodyweight support is is looking at right now. There was actually a clinical trial that was run. The findings were just reported in the last year that showed that the type of training a person gets may not be as important as the fact that locomotor training is going on. Dr. Bruce Dobkin and a whole team, I think there were six or seven sites in this trial, Dr. Dobkin's at UCLA, but he was the principal investigator on the trial, compared intensive locomotor therapy using bodyweight-supported treadmill training to other physical therapy, which was meaning you know more traditional locomotor therapy in patients for the first 12 weeks after their injury. And what happened is both, if you just looked at one of the arms, just the treadmill training, you would have said, these guys did great. Mm-hmm. You know, they did so much better than expected. You know, the number of Incomplete patients that walked were in, I think, the 80 or 90 degree, 90 percent range. But the thing that was most shocking was so did the control group. That more intensive type of physical training and locomotor training than probably than the patients would have gotten otherwise. And they did very, very well as well. So the idea that rehabilitation in whatever form it takes can be hugely important is, was I think verified by that trial. But as you said, getting at the exact mechanism why a person walks better was exactly that type of treadmill training, training the nerves of the spinal cord. We don't know the answer to that yet. In terms of the term we hear, CNS plasticity, I imagine that's what we've been referring to, the ability to train the central nervous system and make new connections and recover. Are there there other ways of trying to tap into that plasticity? That's exactly what we're referring to, and that's exactly one of the mechanisms that we think is happening. Some of the regenerative therapies that are being tested to actually regrow a nerve fiber from where it is uh, injured are also thought to possibly affect plasticity. And so there's a trial going on in Europe right now of an antibody that actually blocks proteins in the central nervous system that inhibit growth. So you're blocking a blocker, sometimes like putting a bag over a stop sign so you just go right past it. And in that case, one of the effects of this no-go antibody that's being tested was actually to induce what's called sprouting, or as you use the term correctly, um, plasticity, so that intact nerve fibers may actually reach out and touch new nerve connections 
and be able to restore some function. That's one of the mechanisms by which drugs like that may ultimately work. I will often see patients who have lost limbs in traumatic injuries have certain electrical stimulatory devices that help. Are those being used in spinal cord injury at all? They're definitely being used in spinal cord injury. There's a a type of stimulation called functional electrical stimulation, sometimes referred to as functional neuromuscular stimulation, because that's exactly what it is. It's, It's both electrical and neuromuscular. You're actually applying an electrode, sometimes just by taping it to the skin surface above a nerve, sometimes by actually going through the skin and putting electrodes into the nerves near the point where they reach the muscle. The technique is called functional electrical stimulation, or FES. Mm -hmm. It's been used for years. Certainly the surface type of FES has been used in bicycles. So you, you see a person sort of reclining in the bicycle, and you strap the feet in, and you put these electrodes on the on their skin surface, and the electrodes actually drive the person's own nerves and muscles to fire. So the, the nerves fire, the muscles contract. What that does is it, number one, strengthens the muscles that are otherwise weak because they're paralyzed. Mm-hmm. It uses a person's own muscles, which stimulates the cardiovascular changes that happen to all of us when we exercise. So the person is not only moving their muscles, but they're actually exercising. Well, if they're doing it on a bike, you'd say, well, that's great, but, you know, I walk on a treadmill and I don't get anywhere. Somebody's bicycling and they don't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. So there's actually been FES devices developed to allow some individuals with complete injuries to walk. Um, There's a device called Paristep, which was developed and actually FDA approved in 1994, again, using surface stimulation to stimulate the quadriceps muscles of the leg in front, the gluteal muscles in the back. Um, That basically helps you extend your hip and come to a standing posture. And then the peroneal nerve behind the, um, basically a little bit lateral of the knee, um, just below the knee, to actually allow people to take steps. And so they wear a battery on their belt and the controller, they use a walker and press a button when it's time to take a step to stand up or sit down. Unfortunately, those kinds of devices, as as well as they work in some people, they're very, very um, exhausting. Mm -hmm. So a person can maybe walk. I know some people who could walk over a mile with that device, and we're talking about a complete paraplegic at this point. Can't stand up, can't move his muscles with will at all, but with this device can walk, like I said, up to a mile. But it's extremely exhausting. It's like running a marathon. Um, You can only do it every couple of days. Other people use the system much more moderately, so they'd be able to stand and sit during daily functions working in their kitchen, that kind of thing. But, you know, they are limited. There's a certain population. You can't use this if the motor neurons in your spinal cord are actually lost that would talk to the muscle because you need the nerves. So there are some limitations, and there are also implanted devices that have been developed for a number of things that I think would be really interesting to talk about. The thought that came to my mind is that these must require some pretty sophisticated programming is already work on trying to make these volitional that we can when I you or I take a walk we think about walking and we do it there are a number of ways people are trying to do that for one as i say there are um other systems that are currently under development that actually go into the nerves and muscles with either wired stimulators or actually there's stimulators that have been developed called bions which are completely self-contained the controllers are not self-contained, as you said. The, the control systems are very complex. But these implanted systems also have the possibility of sensing 
muscle movement and giving some feedback. That's mm-hmm. something that hasn't yet really been done successfully yet, but people are very very much centered on trying to develop systems that can sense the muscle and actually not completely replace stimulation, but just augment muscle movement when it's needed. And then systems to control, you know, multiple joints over time to allow a person to function much more naturally. That's incredible stuff. Really, obviously, would change the quality of a person's life to be able to do all these things, whether it be walking or have renewed control of bowel or bladder. Very uh, encouraging, exciting developments. Well, I want to thank Dr. Naomi Kleitman, who's been our guest, as we've been discussing some novel approaches to helping our patients with chronic spinal cord injuries. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.